Good morning, Grace Church. Please open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. And if you're able, please stand with me to read God's Word. Today we are going to see a beautiful picture of a healing at the beautiful gate near the temple in Jerusalem. And we're going to see once again that the answer to all of our heartaches and sin and struggle is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ who beautifully restores what sin makes ugly and destroys. I'm going to read Acts 3 verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we come here today needy Lord, I pray that as we hear of this man's need, if we hear the story of this man's need and how you went far beyond his expectation, I pray, Lord, that you would, would, would go far beyond our expectation and that, Lord, you would, would arrest our souls with your beauty, the beauty of gospel truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we are in the book of Acts, and we have already gone through chapters 1 and 2. Now we're in chapter 3, and Acts is a story of Christ's continuing work in and through His chosen witnesses for His sovereign purposes. And we've seen really five main themes in the book of Acts. I'll do a little review with you here. First and foremost, we see the risen and returning Lord Jesus Christ. He is the major character in the book of Acts. Secondly, we see the Holy Spirit. Third, the all-sufficient Word of God. Fourth, God's chosen witnesses. And fifth, God's sovereign purposes unfolding. And we have seen that Acts is a, a foundational book, but it's also transitional. It records the first 30 years, the narrative history of the first 30 years of the church. 
bridges the Gospels with the rest of the New Testament. It is not a blueprint. It is not a recipe for how everything should look in the church today. It describes God's work in his witnesses for his purposes. And and it basically tells, it really shows and tells us what God did through them. Now chapter 1 tracked the time between Christ's ascension to heaven and giving the Spirit at Pentecost. They were actively waiting in the upper room. They were obeying, praying, fellowshipping, searching God's word, seeking his will, basically doing what Christians do. Then God led them to choose Matthias to replace Judas, and the stage was set. Everything was ready for God's gift of the Spirit and the church to be built, starting there on the day of Pentecost, which is what we see in chapter 2. And chapter 2 tells of the birth of the church and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that came upon the church. Pentecost ushered in a, a new phase in God's plan of redemption. And the, the truth we see there, and it's true for every believer of all time, that the Holy Spirit indwells believers permanently for salvation and fills them with ongoing power to serve His purposes. So we've seen all this in chapters 1 and 2. We saw the Spirit be sent. We saw the church be born. And and then everything kicks into high gear. Peter takes a very prominent role and boldly stands up to a mocking crowd. He explains the word of God. He exalts Christ. He exposes sin. He exhorts to repentance. And that day, on the day of Pentecost, God saves 3,000 souls. This huge ingathering as he is collecting the elect and What we see next is the church continuing on, doing what the church does. So we spent really a whole month of September in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and where Luke is telling how the believers continually attended the temple. He told of the wonders and the miracles that God was doing through the apostles, and he also told of the great awe that came upon all the Jews that were observing all these things. People were were seeing this happen, and it didn't escape their notice. And and what what Luke does is he showcases uh, the activities, the the attitudes, and the impact of the first church. So we saw four passions of a church devoted to Christ. First of all, a passion for the Word of God, the the apostles' teaching. Secondly, a passion for caring community, where they were sharing of themselves, sharing of their things in, in fellowship. And a passion to remember Jesus in the breaking of the bread at the Lord's table. And then they had a passion, we saw last week, to depend on God. We, we, we read about how they, they prayed. It was a plural. They were committed, they were devoted to the prayers. Does anyone remember how they prayed? Two words. Together, often. Together, often. That's how they prayed. You need to remember that. Together, often. And now we're in chapter 3, and here's what Luke is doing with chapter 3. And really, it's pretty amazing, but chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 4, is all about this one situation of healing this lame man at the the beautiful gate of the temple, and all the things that happen as a result. Uh, An intense persecution gets stirred up, but a lot of people come to faith in Christ as well. So that's what we're going to see, really, in the next two chapters. It all starts with these ten verses I just read. 
And Luke is illustrating the very things we've seen for the last month. How, how God uh, brought about the church and how they were devoted to Christ and then the word, fellowship, breaking bread and prayers. Now he's explaining that. He's illustrating that with this story. If you think about what happened in the early church, they're powerfully praising God and it, it overflows their worship overflows into evangelism, and they're sharing their faith with all these people. And Acts 3 describes one of the signs and wonders that took place through the apostles. Chapter 2, verse 43 says, many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. This is one of them. This is the first miracle of healing recorded in the book of Acts. Now, there are many. As we go through this, we will see this over and over again. Many Workings of miracles happen in the book of Acts. Now, this is a very public event. You might remember that in Acts 2.46, it said that the church continued to worship in the temple daily. And so they were going there, and they were hanging out in Solomon's colonnade, this portico, this porch place where they would hear the apostles' teaching, and they would pray together. And so they're going to the temple, and this is a very public event that happens. And this public event really jumpstarts this intense persecution against the church, which eventually results in them being pushed out of the temple. And so they go out and into the surrounding communities, and, and then at, at some point after chapter 13, past Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So God was doing these wonders and signs through the apostles, and I want you to note this. There is a reason why he was doing them. The reason why God was doing these wonders and signs through the apostles was for a specific purpose. It was to validate the gospel message. And you can't forget that. It was to validate the gospel message. So we get into this scene. And sometime after the day of Pentecost, this amazing event happens near a significant gate in the temple courts. You've got two of the apostles, Peter and John, are confronted by a lame beggar who is asking for money. That's usually what beggars are asking for, okay? They're asking for money. And God uses them to manifest the healing power of Jesus and to restore the paralyzed limb of this man. So that's what we're seeing, these 10, ten verses here, the healing at the beautiful gate. So the man gets cured, and the man makes a spectacle in the temple courts. He is so excited, he can't, he can't contain his excitement. And so he, he very demonstratively praises God for his healing. And Luke is singling out this one story. Now this story was probably really well known amongst the church. It probably got repeated and retold frequently over and over before it was ever written down. But he's giving us this story because he's bringing us into the action. He's been describing everything. Now he's given an illustration of what he's been describing. He's telling us about an episode that attracts a huge crowd of people, has a huge impact on the early church, both positively and negatively, and it gives Peter another opportunity to do what? Preach the gospel. Okay, so let's, we'll dive in right now at verse one. And I want you to see, first of all, the expectation of the beggar and it was very simple help me <laughs> okay the beggar saying help me please so verse one peter and john are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer and peter and john are close friends they're close companions they'd spent a lot of time together 
They're going, kind of an everyday occurrence here, they're going to pray at the temple. They were partners in a fishing business, Luke 5.10 tells us. They were in the inner circle of Jesus with, along with James. And John 20 tells us that they went together to the empty tomb. So they had had some very significant things happen together. And so Peter and John being together would be a normal thing. And going to the temple was part of their day-to-day activities as we saw in Acts 2.46. And the temple had three set meeting times where people would go and pray. 9 a.m., which is known as the third hour, basically starting from 6 a.m. and counting out. Noon, which was the sixth hour, and then 3 p.m., which was the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, as you could guess, would be the big, uh, a big time of a lot of people at the temple, and the priests are offering sacrifices and leading in prayers. And we know prayer was a big deal in the apostles' life in the early church. Uh, they prayed together often. But what you see is all these new believers were Jews. So they're going to the temple and observing the set times of worship in the temple. Just so happens that they're going with the gospel truth. And so they're going and they're explaining Jesus to their fellow Jews. Now verse 2 tells us that a man lame from birth was being carried. If you can imagine this, ever since he was born, literally this is from his mother's womb, he is being carried. He's never walked Okay, Acts 4.22 tells us he was over 40 years old. So you figure he's over 40, and for over 40 years, he'd never known what it meant to walk. Ever. And they would lay him at this gate every day to beg for money. So he'd never been able to walk, and begging was his job. This was how he made his living. It's how he got his, his money to live on. And you know it worked because he's alive and he's getting taken there every single day. Some friends had to take him there. He couldn't get there on his own. I don't know the situation. We don't know anything about that. We don't even know this guy's name. We don't know if these people that brought him there you know, got a cut of the money. We don't know if there are people of his family or friends that just cared a lot about him. All we know is that They knew this was his best chance to make a living, so they took him there. So I would call them great friends who gave him a ride to work every day. Now, it it wouldn't have been surprising to see poor people or, or handicapped people begging in Jerusalem, particularly near the temple, because almsgiving, which is basically giving charity to people who need it, helping people who need it, Uh, was classified in Judaism as a very meritorious act. So here's this guy who's placed at the gate where tons of people are going. He doesn't go to the outskirts of town where no no one is. He goes to where everyone is streaming in. And they put him at the biggest, best, most beautiful gate in the temple. And he's hoping that as people are walking in to worship God, they would feel compassion on him and give him some coins some silver or gold coins and then the people giving the coins would get kudos you know brownie points for for being very generous because they were giving and people would see them giving which would even make it even better for them okay you know how it goes sometimes when you do something to be seen jesus says don't do that but we all know how we do that we we like to call attention to a good thing we do we don't usually call attention to the bad things we do but usually the good things 
And so charitable giving was viewed as very noteworthy when done at the temple. So he's at the right spot. I mean, this guy wants to make a good living. He's at the exact right spot. I don't know how he got that spot, and I'm sure he's not the only beggar. Okay, this was a very big area. But here's a contrast that I want to point out to you. Here's, here's a big contrast. Here you have this lowly, lame beggar sitting against the temple's most opulent entrance. It was known as the beautiful gate. Here is a man that would have been seen in the eyes of many as ugly, and he's at a place called beautiful. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that this gate was greater and more valuable than the other gates that were covered with silver and gold. You're like, how could you get better than that, right? Well, this gate was the most costly. It had much thicker silver and gold plates on it. But it also was overlaid with something we wouldn't consider as valuable, but they did. It was overlaid with Corinthian bronze, brass that was imported from a great distance away. And, and it was, so it was greater and more valuable than any other gate. It also was bigger and better. The beautiful gate was 82 feet tall. So this is not a small opening to, to the temple. This is huge, 82 feet tall, almost 50 feet taller than the other gates. And it took, get this, it took 20 men to open the gates. Can you imagine that? Gates so heavy and so big that 20 men using all their energy had to be used to get the gates open. And here's another thing. Think about this. Mankind could make this great place, but they couldn't help the lame beggar beyond giving him money to live. They could make this huge, beautiful gate, but they couldn't heal him. So verse three, uh, he sees Peter and John. So Peter and John are walking by. He's being carried, okay? Now, get this. It says he was being carried. You assume that he's sitting there, but it says he was being carried to his spot. So Peter and John are going, and they're about to go in the temple, so he does what he does. He asks for money. In fact, the, the Greek construction of this means he used a line he used all the time, and it probably would have worked really well. So he's asking, you know, give to the poor, basically. It's like when you see people at a freeway off-ramp, right? Or a major intersection. They don't go to some back street that no one's driving down. They go to where the people are. And when they do that, they do that hopefully to get some help. They want help. Now, we have a lot of things we think and feel about people who are at freeway off-ramps and major intersections, okay? And we may not always agree with how they do it or why. And we probably heard the, the stories of the person with the Mercedes who has the Mercedes parked down the block and then they, they beg at the corner. But for the most part, when someone gets to that point in their life, when all they can do for their job is to ask for money, there's a lot of things going on there, right? A lot of moving parts there. But they do it out of need. Okay? They need help. Okay? So you see here, really the high and the lowly. You've got the people walking into the temple and they're thinking they're pretty cool. They're, they're going through the big gate, the beautiful gate, and the Jews going in would have looked down on this lame beggar. Literally looked down at him and also looked down on him saying, you know, like, why are you doing this? And, and boy, God must really be punishing you for someone's sin. Even if you were born this way, I'm sure there's someone's sin that you're getting punished for. 
The Jews would have looked down on this lame beggar, but God used him, this unnamed man, beautiful in God's sight, to display his power and allow Peter to preach the gospel. Really, Peter would, people would have assumed that the consequences were coming forth on this guy from someone's really bad sins. They would have said, well, his parents must have sinned in some way for him to be like this. And Jesus very clearly combats this kind of thinking. Go to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Jesus sees a man blind from birth. The guy was born blind. And his disciples asked him. See, it wasn't just, um, you know, the, 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 the regular groups of Jews. This was his disciples asking him this question. This is how they thought. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? There's that thinking, and Jesus is attacking this kind of thinking. He answers, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was for the glory of God. You see it also in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. That false teaching that all suffering um, was the consequence of having committed some horrible sin. In Luke 13, there were some present that, that told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, this bloody scene. And he answered him, he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, he says. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he gives an example. Jesus says, I guess there was this, this tower in Siloam that fell and killed 18 people in that time. He says, do you think that the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think they were worse sinners than the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We have got to grasp this. It's too easy for us to try to connect the dots on what's going on in someone's life and why. All who suffer are sinners, and all sin is heinous in God's sight, and everyone is going to die because of sin. Everyone will physically die because sin exists in the world. And death will overtake all people unless they repent. That's what we have to remember. Now, this lame beggar that was healed eventually died sometime, right? Everyone who's ever been healed eventually dies. You've got Lazarus who died and Jesus brought him back to life, but guess what? Lazarus died one day, just we just don't have that recorded. Eutychus, when, when Paul is preaching past midnight one night, Eutychus falls out of the window and falls down dead and Paul goes down and revives him, and he died, and he, got back, and, he, and he came back to life. But he died another day, right? Here's what Jesus said in John 11. Whoever believes in me will live even if they die. Basically, death can't hold you if you're a believer. You will die physically, but you won't die spiritually because you're spiritually alive in Christ. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us, that we were dead in sin until, until God made us alive uh, together with Christ because of his great mercy with which he loved us. So you think about the expectation here, and, and the beggar's expectation is, I want money. He didn't want healing. He wasn't asking for healing. Isn't that interesting? He didn't want healing. I'm sure he had long since given up on that hope. But there's different expectations going on here because Peter and John had something else in mind. 
Because what we see next is a very strong exhortation. In fact, it is a command that at face value looks very cruel. They told someone who cannot walk to walk. It sounds like a cruel joke, but it was the most loving thing that Peter could have ever said. So you look at verse four. You see this strong exhortation, rise up and walk. The guy's expectation is help me with some money and the exhortation he receives is, walk. Verse 4, Peter looks at him, and John looks at him, and they say, look at us. Kind of a weird thing, like, yeah, it looks like that would have been happening, but think about it. This guy's a beggar, and he's looking all around asking for money. And if he gets their eyes, even as they're walking towards him, he's probably thinking, what other, what other possible benefactors are there that, that I might be able to, to draw in? So Peter says, look at us, which I think is very amazing. We don't like to look at beggars. They wanted to look at him. I think it's amazing. Here's this man looked down upon. They took time with him. Don't ever discount one-on-one ministry with people, especially people that don't look like good prospects. Verse 5, he fixed his attention on them. Why? Because he expects that they're going to give him money. So he's thinking he's going to get rewarded, so he's looking at them. And again, there's the competing expectations once again. Wanting money, and then Peter and John, they want the glory of God. And then then there's contrasting situations. We've got to remember, here's this unknown beggar with a very frustrating life experience and a very frustrating existence. And then there's the apostle uh, Peter and, and, and his companion John who have very expectant faith in the Lord Jesus. Because here's what Peter says in verse six. He says, I don't have any silver and gold. Can you imagine if you're walking by someone and they're asking you for money and you kind of check your pockets, you check your wallet, and you're like, well, I don't have any money. They're going to be like, well, forget you, okay? Next, let's go to the next person. So Peter says, I have no silver and gold. So I'm guessing this guy's disappointed. He's thinking, why do they ask me to look at them then? Are they bugging me? What's going on? But to his surprise, here's the words he hears next. In the name of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Walk. There's an exhortation. Now here's an interesting thing. In the, in the Jewish mind, you gotta think about the Jewish mind here and what they would have been thinking when using someone's name. It didn't just identify or distinguish a person, like Peter saying, um, in the name of this guy that we know who was from Nazareth, but, but now isn't here anymore. Just wanna tell you who he is. It, it's basically he's expressing the very nature of his being how Jews would think the power of the person then is present and available in the name of that person what you see is that Peter is not acting on his own authority he is appealing to the risen Jesus to do a work of healing to manifest his healing power now there are people in that day were people in that day that were itinerant healers that would go around and call on various kinds of deities and helper spirits to to attempt healing Peter is calling on the name of the risen Jesus Lord Jesus Christ and who he is. So he's offering the beggar something much more valuable than silver and gold. So what you see next is is Peter grabbing the beggar by the right hand and pulling him up. It's interesting. One writer says that the power is God's, the hand was Peter's. You see an exaltation here. Uh, Verses 7 through 10, God immediately heals the guy, immediately. That's the key word here, right away, immediately. Instantaneously, his 
feet and his ankles are strengthened immediately, there was this instantaneous and complete healing that takes place. Now, I don't know how long it took you to, to learn to walk when you were a kid. Um, your parents might tell you stories like, oh, you were slower than most kids, or, oh, it took you, uh, you know, three months, or whatever, you know. Uh, that doesn't happen usually. So, um, but but beggar, the beggar who had, never, who had never walked learned in a split second how to walk. We, we can't imagine that. In a split second, he learned how to walk. He had never done this before. So verse 7 says that Peter takes him by the right hand, raises him up, immediately he's healed. Instantaneous, immediate restoration. This is the resurrection power of God. This is the creative uh, power of God. This is the the dynamite power of God. And and the effect on the man is traumatic. Traumatic. And by the way, this, this healing, it marks one more instance of the ongoing work of Christ through the church. Luke announced it at the very beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1, that he says that his gospel was an account of all the things that Jesus began to do and teach because he is continuing to do these things. So verse 8 tells us that the man leaps up and stands and begins to walk and he goes into the temple. That might not sound like a big deal. You look in Leviticus and it says that people that are are handicapped can't attend the temple. He was never allowed in the temple. He was at the gate, at the biggest gate, at the beautiful gate, never allowed in. He'd never been in this place and he enters the temple with them and here's what he's doing. Now, you know, you came in here, most of you are just kind of walking in, you know, kind of like you go to a library, like, shh, I don't know why, but you do, okay? I do too. This guy's different. This guy is walking and leaping and praising God. The word used for leaping here is as a deer. Have you ever seen a deer leap? They, they leap like tall buildings in a single bound, right? I've seen deers go over fences. Uh, or, you know, they, they do it. They just, boom. They're, they're, that's the way he was leaping. He was, he was just bouncing around. That, was it Tigger that did that? Tigger that was bouncing? But he's doing this, and he's praising God. So he's, he's, he's so excited, he can't contain his excitement. And I don't know about you, but if that was one of us, I don't think that, that it would be hard to, to say that this was not excessive. For example, I don't think you get flagged for excessive celebration on this one. Okay? I think this constitutes a reason to celebrate like this. Okay? And, and all the people, verse 9, all the people saw it. Nobody... Nobody missed this. They saw him walking and praising God. And verse 10 tells us they recognized him. They got eyes, they saw, and he's the guy. Whoa, whoa, that's the guy that used to be at the gate begging for money. Everyone knew it. His feet and, 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 and uh, legs were probably all mangled up. I've seen pictures where people are just, they're, they're laying on the ground begging and their feet are just mangled up and there's no, they don't move at all. It's just the way it is for them in their life. And so the people, and they're filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. They are excited as well. But we'll find out later, we'll find out next week, that there might have been some misunderstanding because Peter has to start by saying, don't look at us, me and John, as if we did this by our own power. So the people were amazed, but it's not as if they were like going, oh yeah, we're gonna praise God too. 
They're just thinking, what's up with these guys? <laughs> and this guy is praising God. And this was, this, was, this was a sign to those who had eyes to see the presence of the messianic age, of which the prophet had long ago predicted. Isaiah 35, 6, the lame will leap like a deer. This is what is happening. What do we know about this man? Do, do we know anything about if he believed or not? Look at Acts 3.16. Acts 3, not John 3.16, Acts 3.16. Peter's preaching. Okay, we're gonna see this next week. But basically he's talking about how the people were guilty in denying Jesus, the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted instead, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And then verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. So you see that this man believed. In the explanation, there'll be a further explanation even in chapter four. But as I was reading this, I'm sure that there were some things that stuck out to you as I'm reading it, as I'm preaching this, I'm sure that there's something that God, you know, really maybe pointed out to you or that was noteworthy. And as I've been thinking about this passage all week, there, there are just some things that are just leaping out at me. And I, I was writing things down, and I realized I had come up with five exclamations, five exclamation points of, wow, wow, this is amazing. And I want to share those with you. The first that, that I really, that was just, striking to me and, and it's 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 low-hanging fruit if you think about it when you're going through the book of acts but it's this how fixated on jesus they were like how focused in how dialed in on jesus they were when the great preacher martin lloyd jones was preaching a sermon on this very passage once here's how he ended his sermon he said here we see authentic christianity and nothing else and i think that's not a bad thought i think it's true if what we mean by authentic Christianity is drawing attention to Christ and being focused on him, because that's what this situation was. The Christ-centered nature of these first Christians was extremely obvious, strikingly so. It's obvious from even a brief reading of the book of Acts that they were, in the best possible way, fanatical about Jesus. They were, they were fascinated with Jesus. They were fixated on Jesus so much about who he is and what he had done and what he was still doing. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Jesus healed the guy. And they were not just giving pop psychology to the people. They were not just giving a philosophical system that might work or an ethical plan. The heart of their message was the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ because that was the heart of their experience of God. Jesus had saved them. Jesus had forgiven them. They had come into fellowship with God through faith in Christ and experienced what Peter preached in Acts 2.38, forgiveness of sins. They'd been forgiven and so they were fixated on the forgiver of their sins. And in Jesus, they had joy. Acts 2.46, they had joy. And Jesus was, as Peter had preached in Acts 2.22, a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. We know by his preaching that they 
Peter's preaching that they crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead and declared him both Lord and Christ. So they were fanatical about this Lord and Christ. So, so must we be too. Yeah, it's, it's really good to be fanatical about Jesus. Well, I'll tone it down a little. Why? Why? If you have been... If you've been captured by the grace of God, if, you, if, if your heart has been arrested by the grace of God in Christ, you should not temper that excitement. You should not temper that enthusiasm for Jesus. So I think the first thing I saw was just, wow, how fixated on Jesus they were. And the second thing that, 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 that got me was is how generous grace is. How generous grace is. Here we are at the beautiful gate and Peter's offering beautiful Jesus to a beautiful needy soul. That's what he saw. I don't have money, but what I do have I give to you. Tim, Timothy Keller calls God a prodigal God, an extravagant giver who gives extravagantly like the father of the prodigal, but we look at the prodigal son story and we only think of this son that went to the wayward was wayward and went to the far country but basically the father the prodigal was was extravagant with both sons he was going after both the lost son and the legalistic son who stayed home both were lost both were trying to be god of their own life one by irreligion one by religion but we read in the word that because of the great love with which he loved us being rich in mercy god saved us in Ephesians 3.18, Paul prays that believers would know what is the hope to which he has called us and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Just the other day, I got a free t-shirt. I went to a pastor's gathering, and they gave me a free t-shirt, and it says, Live Generously. It's a cool shirt, by the way. But if we want to live generously, if we, want to, if we want to be generous with God's grace, then it needs to start with our relationships and how gracious and loving and including and attending to needy souls and loving people so much that we don't hold Jesus back from them. That's where it's got to start. If you want to live generously, be generous first with grace. Grace gives freely to us to give freely. Freely you have received, Jesus said, freely give. Peter gave. What a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to be used by God to share with needy souls, share with needy beggars the unfathomable riches of Christ. How generous grace is. The third thing that I, I just noticed was just how powerful God is. It's so easy to get cauterized, get, get, get calloused to hearing about miracles in the Bible and and. Miracle is, a, it's a, as Daniel Doriana, Doriani puts it, a direct act of God in the external world in which he works outside of, not against, the common course of events to reveal himself, to authenticate his servants and manifest his nature and redemptive purposes. See, miracles tell us about something that cannot be explained by the normal course of science. It's what, it's what C.S. Lewis called the interference of, with nature by a supernatural power. 
Here God interfered with this lame beggar situation and this man crippled from birth got up and walked and leaped for joy. And people crippled from birth don't suddenly get up and do that. Something extraordinary took place here and it required power from outside. It's indicative of the power of God. So God is so powerful. A fourth thing that struck me was really an exclamation in my heart was how dependent we are on God for everything. The man could not do what he was commanded to do without God. I think there's a window into the nature of the gospel here. There is nothing we can do to get ourselves saved. The miracle in the name of Jesus, Peter is pointing him to Jesus as the author of the miracle, which was a sign of what Jesus had come into the world to do. I, I quoted Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. The, this prophet is giving this vivid description of the, in the Old Testament of what the Messiah would do. The eyes of the blind are going to be opened. The ears of the deaf are going to be unstopped. The lame will leap like deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. These are all things that God will do as he is reversing the curse in Christ. You think about it, Isaiah prophesying this is basically saying that Eden will be restored to its pre-fall beauty. Waters breaking forth in, in the wilderness, streams in the desert, and all that. This is about the coming of Jesus Christ ushering in the beginning of a process, the beginning of a process that will, that will, that will at, at his return, will accomplish the, the complete fulfillment of that prophecy. So what do we have here? We have here a, a healing that is indicative of a, is a sign of a day that is coming. That day, the Bible calls it that day. In Acts 17, Paul's preaching and he says, God has set a day by which he will judge the world with righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says that when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. We're so dependent. God, God healed this guy, but Peter told a guy to do something he couldn't do. He didn't have the power to do it. He was commanding the impossible. Matthew 19.26 says what is impossible with man is possible with God. We like to work in the realm of possibilities, don't we? God works in the realm of human impossibilities. Last thing I'll share is, is, just, is just that what, what, what probably welled up in my heart the most about this passage is what a great picture of the gospel this is. That God is so good, and I, I kept thinking God is so good in giving us this picture of the gospel. He gave this miracle to confirm to glorify himself by confirming his word in that day. Rise and walk. Here's a picture of the gospel. Charles Wesley, uh, quoting from Isaiah 35, when he, he wrote the song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, wrote, Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. See, God gives joy, and we believe the gospel. When you and I come to God and come to Christ in faith as fatally flawed sinners. We come to a perfect, sovereign Savior. 
He pulls us out of our bondage and misery and sorrow brought on by our sin. And he brings us into the light and freedom of the children of God. He gives us inexpressible joy. Joy inexpressible and full of glory, as the Bible says. And that should make us leap and weep. We should leap and weep. It's a picture of regeneration. We are called in the gospel to repent and believe. Our hardened hearts are dead in trespasses and sins and unable to respond to that command. There is no way that our sins can be blotted out as Acts 3.19 talks about God blotting out sins unless and until God does a secret work of making the dead live. And that's what happens when you come to faith in Christ. God makes the dead live and you, you hear the gospel message and you respond with your whole heart and you say, I want Jesus. I need to be saved by him. As we close up today, I, just, I, I want to I address one thing that I think is a pretty loud question when you think about this passage. Why isn't God doing these things in this manner today? Because a lot of people's answers would be because of the church's lack of faith. I don't believe that. Because I don't think it's biblical. There are miracles of healing that happen and have happened and will continue to happen. You look in the book of Acts and you've got tongues being given. Languages that they didn't learn and that was a sign of judgment on unbelieving Jews. Then you see in the book of Acts miracles of healing. What are those? Those are signs from God to unbelievers that the gospel message is true by the apostles that he's speaking it through before the New Testament existed. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. But guess what? Nobody but the apostles and two others did any miracles in the book of Acts. Only the apostles. Paul says, Ephesians 2.20, that the, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There are no healings recorded in any New Testament letter regarding any New Testament church. Hebrews 2 says God bore witness. How should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And we, we to that we say God in his sovereign good pleasure does as he pleases when he pleases. Do you know in the New Testament believers got sick? Even to the point of death? And God allowed them at times to stay in that condition. And it wasn't because of any lack of faith in, on their parts. It was because that the, the God would be glorified. Now we can't grapple with that. We want healing and we want it now. And we must never discount healing that God gives. Some of you have been healed by can from cancer, from many things. You have been healed. Your bodies have been healed. Your minds have been healed. Your souls have been healed. You cannot discount that God does that. But some have not been healed. Some here have not been healed and won't be healed. And some aren't here with us anymore because they got, a, uh, they got their healing earlier, their full healing earlier. I was thinking just this morning of, of Dave Baker and Dan Berrigan and John Blassingame, all in one year, these three men who went to be with Jesus a few years back. It's okay to pray for healing, but don't expect healing and then get disappointed when it doesn't happen because you've been told that every Christian needs to be healed. But then let me tell you this. If you believe in Jesus, you can expect to be healed. 
first hour, everybody looked up. Like, everyone was looking down first hour, and as soon as I said that, everybody looked up at me. I'm like, ooh, got your attention. Yeah, if you believe in Jesus, you can expect to be healed. Eventually. It's the only biblical answer. It won't be immediate. It might be immediate. But in the world to come, you will be healed because one day you will have a perfect new body. And God may heal you in this life, but the principle of death still remains while you're on this globe, and you will die physically someday because the world we live in groans with the pains of childbirth until this, until this very day, until waiting for that day when all things will be made new. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We praise you for healing. We praise you for salvation. We thank you, Lord, that this healing that we read about today as we opened up our Bibles and read, and the faith that, that came to this man, it came to one who wasn't looking for it, which is the nature of true salvation. You, you, you save. You heal. And Lord God, for those of us that are unable to, to do or to move or are stuck or are realistically aware of our limits, we praise you. And we want to rest from our striving works and rest in your, your good work. And Lord God, no matter what it is, what it is, whether it's hard to get out of a chair sometimes with tough, creaky joints or cancer or infirmities or even emotional pain of divorce and contention and frustration and anger and critical spirits and unforgiveness and seemingly irreconcilable differences, Lord God, take it all. We trust all unresolved issues to Jesus. And Lord God, we look forward to our ultimate healing. Lord, may we adopt a long view, an eternal perspective that healing will one day come. Because if we have hoped on this life only, we are most to be pitied. We thank you, Lord God, that for those of us who have believed we can live and share the gospel. Lord, Lord, help us to take a, a, a long, cool, refreshing drink of the gospel today and then share one with a friend. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.